Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Establishing trust between people and institutions is extremely important, but there are pitfalls to the current methods we all use to establish trust. Many people lack trust in huge centralized systems given their size, subsequent power, and lack of transparency. On the other hand, Decentralized systems with democratizing ideas intended to build trust are often difficult to execute at scale, especially at the pace required to keep up with technological acceleration. On this episode of Future of Tech, Eli Ben Sassoon, co-founder, president, and chairman of the board at Starkware, discusses his alternative approach, which involves using math in order to build trust. A math proof, he explains, can offer broad verification across a great amount of data between parties by checking the computation at specific points. In layman's terms, that means the issue of scalability is solved while also reducing cost. And these zero-knowledge proofs also provide the added benefit of privacy since there is no information shared about any of the parties involved beyond the computation. Most importantly, since the math is objective, correct, and verifiable, trust among all parties increases. So what does this all mean for the future of trust in business and tech? Find out on this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. So welcome to a new episode of Future of Tech. Today, my guest is uh, Eli Ben-Sasson, who is a co-founder, president, and chairman of uh, Starkware. And we're gonna speak about uh, many interesting topics, uh, blockchain and zero trust and uh, some other cool, uh, relatively new topics. Eli is a, was a professor in the Technion, Israel Institute of Technology, has a PhD in computer science from the Hebrew Univers University in Jerusalem. And as I said, today is um, actively working in uh, in the area of uh, blockchain, zero knowledge, and uh, cryptographic computing solutions. Now, uh, hello, Eli. Welcome. Hi, Avishai. Thanks for having me here. Usually we start, and I think it will be a good point to start with maybe you introducing yourself and how did it all start? How did you find yourself uh, involved and working in computers and technology? So I started studying biology and computer science. 
with the hope of uh, going into uh, neural networks and uh, you know studying the brain because it's this uh, quite amazing mystery. Um, so that's what I wanted to do. And also I assumed that I am not really interested or good at math. But then what happened was I fell in love. Uh, I mean, I fell in love several times through my life. Uh, uh, this was one where I fell in love with theoretical computer science and math, and I was surprised to see how much I enjoy it. So I changed my path from like you know, neural networks and things like that to a PhD in theoretical computer science. And I was doing theory for a very long time. That's how I got into computer science. What led you um, to look into um, the area of, uh, of zero knowledge or what led you into a career dealing with, uh, with those fields? So as I said, I fell in love with theoretical computer science and math. And I did one kind of research in my PhD, which I did with uh, Professor Avi Vigdelson at the Hebrew University, who just this year received the Abel Prize for his amazing contribution to, uh, to math. Um, so Abel Prize is considered the analog of the Nobel Prize for mathematics. And he received it this year, my um, admired advisor. And then I finished my PhD and I wanted to go and do a postdoc in a different area. And I landed at uh, Harvard and MIT with uh, basically jointly two professors who did very different research. Uh, Salil Badhan at Harvard and Madhu Sudan was then at MIT, now is at Harvard. And uh, with them, we started looking at uh, this topic of uh, proofs um, what I now like to call cryptographic proofs, but there's actually a very large family of, uh, of different kinds of proofs there. Um, and there again, I, I fell in love with a different kind or a different branch of theoretical computer science and math. So the way I got into studying uh, uh, these kinds of proofs that include zero-knowledge proofs, interactive proofs, probabilistically checkable proofs, uh, Starks, SNARKs, uh, IOPs, there's a large zoo of creatures out there was, was through uh, uh, love of the elegance of the mathematical questions that were there. Um, if you want, I can describe a little bit those questions and what got me attracted. For me, you know, uh, when, when I first read about Stark, I thought uh, Tony Stark and, and the Iron Man Industries, but I guess uh, these are not the, uh, the first uh, <laughs> places you will dig in. But uh, would, would you... Oh, Take our audience into explaining what is zero-knowledge proof to someone without any prior knowledge. And maybe um, later on we'll speak about what can society do with it. So first of all, let me explain what, what, what a proof is. So a proof is a little bit like a receipt you get uh, in the grocery. It's something that uh, basically it's a string of characters that convinces you that some statement is correct. Usually if you sit at a restaurant, uh, the statement being proved to you is that the sum you should pay is correct. But a proof itself is some string of characters. So a good image to have in mind is that proofs are just like, you know, these are strings of characters that are given to you to convince you of the correctness of some statement. Okay. In that sense, they're very old, very important, but also somewhat, you know, boring. So who cares about them, you know, right? 
So some of these properties are, you know, if you're given a grocery receipt, then you want to know that it's actually correct. And you don't trust the, the party that gave you the proof, the prover. So basically what you do is you read through the computation, right? Uh, summing up the items and checking that you reach the same sum. So really the proof is just a sequence of computations or inputs to it. And the way that you check the proof is you re-execute the computation that the prover has done. Now with these modern proofs, uh, interactive proofs, uh, Starks, uh, zero-knowledge proofs, one amazing aspect is that the time you need to verify the proof is exponentially smaller than the amount of computation. It's much more akin to, you know, um, someone coming from it for an inspection um, of some huge facility and basically, you know, examining one thing here, one thing there, and based on that, deciding whether everything's fine. Now, when someone comes and examines a huge facility, um, usually you have to look at every part of it in order to know that everything is fine. So going back to your maybe previous example of me going to a restaurant and getting a receipt, if I'm now examining a supermarket or a, a very large chain that is supporting thousands of tens of thousands of people, instead of now checking all their receipts, I will check a given amount of receipts and by, as you call it, the miracle of math, will be able to state that, uh, indeed, this is an accurate uh, indication that everything went well. Yeah, that's a very good, that's a very good analogy. So suppose you want to know that, that all of the receipts or all the computations being done that day at the supermarket, all of them were done correctly. So you come and you inspect not all of them, but you just inspect a random sample. And typically, you know, with, a, with an actual restaurant that doesn't use our fancy math, uh, you'll only know that those receipts that you checked are fine. But with, with our math, and if you want, I can explain and give some analogies as to how this might work. Even though you inspect an amount of information that is similar to checking just one receipt, you get assurance that all of the computations that were done that day in that facility, all of them were correct up to the very last bit. Great. So this is the part of the proof and the part of uh, the zero knowledge? Wait, zero knowledge is a slightly different magical aspect, okay. which says something like this. So in the analogy, if you come to this uh, uh, supermarket and you inspect, uh, let's say, you know, three or five receipts, by looking at those receipts, you learn something, right? Maybe you saw the customer's address, you definitely saw the sum that they paid for those receipts. Yep. So you got a little bit of knowledge about what happened in that uh, supermarket that day. Interesting. And, and why would this be beneficial to anyone? If you, if you learn nothing and you inspect very small items, why, why would someone care about this technique? Now, the way currently, you know, the reason companies and users trust Amdocs with this is probably because they trust Amdocs. But uh, and, you know, maybe there's some auditors and inspectors on behalf of the public or society that comes and checks the software and the computations of MDOCs. But what our technology offers is for, let's say, the public to know, for instance, that all of the computations that MDOCs was doing worldwide on a given day were done correctly while preserving the privacy of all of the customers, right? That's why you need the privacy and zero knowledge. And how does this relate to blockchain? So, okay, 
let's look at you know MDocs uh, compared to a blockchain. So MDocs is is trusted and entrusted by a, a lot of companies to do all kinds of computations, and it does so okay, right? But MDocs at the same time is you know a registered company. It has officers. It it is bound by all kinds of laws of different countries, and and a lot of that is what and there are accountants and auditors inspecting it, and that's what assures society that it is uh, you know, operating with integrity. The blockchain, by design, it basically says everyone is invited to check everything that's going on and know that, that all is correct, and that's the way that you get integrity, by everyone inspecting it. Okay, so if you allow everyone to inspect all of the transactions, and a lot of these are financial transactions, or someday they might be related to our you know, medical history or things like that, then first of all, you're compromising privacy because each and every one of us is invited to inspect all of the transactions of our neighbors and family or competing businesses. So you're losing privacy. And you're also limiting scalability or scale uh, drastically because if we want all the transactions of the world to be processed and inspected by everyone, then you'll get very limited throughput. Okay, so... We've heard about the concept of zero-knowledge proofs. Uh, we broke it into proofs and zero-knowledge, and then about maybe an, a, a mechanism of how to run it all over. So now take it back to the industry or society and tell me how someone or who uh, can benefit from this. I think all of society will benefit from this. For instance, um, I mean, right now, most of our data, important data, valuable data, is held and managed by a small number of huge trusted entities. Some of them are government, right? Yep. All kinds of databases about criminal records, financial records. A lot of them are, are privatized, you know, credit scores, all the data about our search and uh, things like that. So all of this data is sitting with different central parties and uh, they, of course, make immense profits out of it. And they're also very central to the way society functions. But they wield uh, huge power. Now, blockchains come and say, um, or they are part of a demand by society to decentralize this and sort of return the data and the source of truth to become the different individuals, you know, you and I, rather than some big corporation. Um, and at the same time, if you want to know that your funds are being processed with integrity by various financial institutions, you have no recourse to, to check this, actually. You just have to trust this. That's not a perfect system. So that's one side. Let me pause for a second and, and go back into your uh, history and ask you, okay, you went to the U.S., you studied, you came back, you were a professor. What, what brings someone to leave everything and to start a, a company? A couple of things. Um, you know, when you're doing the research, you see these things much earlier than the rest of the world understands it. So I really, really wanted, you know, this thing to, to not just be on a piece of paper and presented in some journal or conference. I really wanted... You know, often when you do research, you're saying, oh, this could theoretically do this and that much better. But, but then, you know, if it theoretically can do that and you know that it can also do so practically, then you really, really want to make sure that it does so. I don't know. There's something that's a lot of fun about that. And so I really wanted to see it come into life. 
And there's only so much that you can do within the academic world, right? Uh, in the academic world, it's about chasing the next big idea, just putting it out there and then moving on. And so far, how do you find it? Is it indeed uh, enthusiastic as, as you imagined? It's amazing. Here, I'll give you an example. Our technology, there's this thing on a blockchain called non-fungible tokens. You know, digital works of art, uh, cards that people play games with. Uh, and uh, these things have representation as non-fungible tokens or NFTs. Now, we have a customer, Starkware. My company has a customer that is a developer of uh, games over blockchains. And uh, it wanted... To have much greater scale and decided to work with us and our system has been in production for the past three months or so and when they came online they said okay we have all of these uh, nfts that we need to mint on the blockchain so that they have real existence uh, using our technology that basically you know scales up exponentially the amount of computation that you can do okay so they wanted us to mint these nfts for them to sort of generate them Now, at the time that we're talking about, like three months ago, the blockchain was completely clogged. This was the Ethereum blockchain. And at that time, minting a single NFT on Ethereum cost uh, roughly $40. You needed to pay $40 in fees to the network, which was very which was beyond its capacity in order to make sure that your NFT gets in the queue. At the very same time, we minted, um, I think it was 1.5 million NFTs. over a short period of time. And the cost of minting a single NFT on our system was one-fifth, one divided by five of a cent. So instead of $40, it is one-fifth of a cent. That's a 20,000x reduction in cost for a system, Ethereum, that has been in production for five or six years. So, I mean, just to summarize, our technology... That basically you know we invented and honed and reinvented and improved because of its uh, amazing you know uh, and almost magical mathematical properties so I have many many more questions to ask um, but you know as, as, a, as a student of math my myself and obviously I've also played with uh, some uh, crypto cryptocurrency I wanted to understand from your end what is the uh, the The mathematical angles that you mentioned um, earlier about uh, you know the uh, ingenuity and the magic um, now math is everything but voodoo science so can can you share some yeah so here's uh, the analogy that I use these days to explain a little bit about what's going on so first of all what is the problem we want to solve We want remember this uh, you know supermarket and you know there's an inspector coming in and the supermarket has processed uh, you know thousands of transactions that day. We want this supervisor to come in, randomly inspect uh, two or three parts of you know like two or three receipts or the uh, amount of information that is tantamount to reading two or three receipts yeah. and based on that, knowing whether, All of these you know million transactions that happened that, that day were all of them done with integrity or if even one of them had one digit off right so this sounds improbable and sounds completely ridiculous how can you do such a thing and so how does the math help with this well we're going to ask the supermarket to 
present the information in a very careful and elaborate way. And this is the analogy I want to give for it. So there are these things called mirror maze or a house of mirrors, these things in theme parks where you go into, into a room and there are all these mirrors on the walls and they're reflecting your image, right? Uh, almost infinitely. Yep. Yep. Right. We all know this. Or another such thing as a kaleidoscope, right? This piece of, uh, you know, this, uh, this tube that has a few mirrors. And, and Okay. So imagine such a contraption, right, that uses basically geometry and physics, right, and the properties of light. To what? To refract and amplify light in some way, right? So imagine that you're sort of uh, a point inside. Uh, so you have like, you know, you have zero volume, but you can see everything. And you're floating inside one of these mirror mazes. So you can look any which way you want, but you don't see yourself because you have zero volume, okay? Now, if the floor and the ceiling are all white, then what you'll see any which way you look at, you'll see this whiteness just amplified uh, everywhere. On the other hand, suppose there is some blemish, some, some piece of, uh, I don't know, like a banana peel or a spot of uh, dirt that, is, that appears, you know, just in one corner of this room. The refraction, right, will cause this image of this uh, banana peel to be visible from any which point you look at. So even if you just take a peek or two in any direction, you'll see it. So what happened here was that you use math, right? Uh, refraction and geometry to get this amplification of, of something. So what, back to the supermarket, the way cryptographic proofs work is you basically, before the inspector comes in, uh, she says to the supermarket, look, take all of your data, and put it through one of these mirror mazes. That's the analogy of the role that math is playing in, in solving this uh, paradox of allowing you to inspect and know if something is correct or not without uh, checking every part of it. Yeah, now as, as I'm, I'm fearing that uh, we may lose half of our audience if we didn't lose them yet, um, I want to ask you something outside of the, this field which is fascinating and, and probably not, you know, I, I can understand the, uh, um, the fact that you said that you wanted to, to be part of it and make something which is not theoretical in the field of um, either deciphering or cryptography. But I'm trying to understand, you know, okay, you founded this company, you're all in it. How do you relax yourself at the end of the day? So minor corrections. First of all, I didn't found it. I co-founded it. I have three other co-founders. Um, and that's already part of the answer to your question. So I have, you know, when we started the company, it was four of us. Um, my three co-founders are, each one of them is someone I deeply respect and enjoy the company of. One is uh, Dr. Michael Ryabtsev. He's our chief architect and uh, he did his PhD under me. And basically he's, one of the co-inventors of, of uh, this uh, Stark protocol that we're now commercializing and, and many, many other contributions to the company. Another is a good friend of mine from way back, 30 years and more, uh, Uri Kolodny, Kolodny, who's our CEO. And uh, third co-founder is Professor Alessandro Chiesa, with whom I've collaborated you know, since the very early days of this research. So First of all, to answer the question, how do I relax myself? I'm in a very enjoyable environment with a lot of uh, good friends, you know, new and old. Um, so just uh, 
there was a lot of fun already internally. We, we were having a lot of fun. Most days, right? There are some stressful periods, uh, so you know, that's unavoidable. And then, you know, there's, of course, the family and some hobbies, and, uh, but that's, you know, everyone has their own. So, I mean, I like windsurfing and uh, a bunch of other things, but uh, I don't get to do that as much these days. And you practice it a lot when you do have time? This is your favorite hobby? I have a lot of favorite hobbies. Well, you know, I could complain, like, uh, you know, I'm in Israel and uh, the, the wind conditions are not uh, optimal for windsurfing, at least where I live. So I don't have much time of it uh, as much as I like. I enjoy playing the guitar. And we were just talking today about forming uh, you know, an internal Starkware band. So, you know, that might be another more fun. But I guess the most fun is, you know, it's just uh, <laughs> there's a, a family that I love dearly. So, you know, that's, uh, that's enough fun for me, just being with them. Where do you see the, um, the industry heading when it comes to blockchain and to potential use cases of the uh, Stark technology? So I think, uh, okay, I think um, the way Stark is going to enter, first of all, I'm deeply optimistic about it. I think. Uh, yeah, obviously selling the company for $5 <laughs> billion dollars and then having a lot of time to surf. But beside that, Uh, $5 billion dollars is, not, uh, is not the price range that this is worth. It's yeah. not a good number. Yeah, because you're four, you're four founders. Okay, 20 billion. That's, that's better. That's getting closer. But anyways, uh, <laughs> <laughs> once you reach the scale and you need the privacy that people need for these things, then you're going to need a technology, uh, this, this ZK Stark technology that, that, you know, that, that uh, we invented and are productizing. So... The next phase is going to be you know uh, gaming you know virtual reality presence in the virtual in in what way gaming just just to make sure that I understand gaming already exists gaming already are being shared and played over the the internet so why why do I need the uh, blockchain technology to be injected into gaming yeah that's a th- terrific question so when you're a gamer you You are assigning a lot of in an online gamer, you are assigning a lot of value to something that currently sits on some server that is maintained by one corporation, and uh, if you know that corporation decides to shut it down, then you know it goes away. If you want to take it and play with it, uh, but this means that uh, you know Sony will need to franchise Spiderman to become an NFT. Um, because you know PlayStation will continue to dominate their own games and Xbox will dominate their own games and I don't see them sharing you know the heroes uh, over blockchains with with the rest of the world oh this is already happening so um, you know one of our customers the immutable X is also white labeling our technology for others to use so another company called Viv uh, VEVE is working on our platform and And they just signed a deal with Marvel to do NFTs for uh, you know the Marvelverse which is a huge huge universe you know spider-man and by the way Tony Stark and Iron Man are part of that so I and I was very happy and I tweeted that you know Tony Stark coming to Stark X at the Stark where that's that's going to be a lot of fun um, at the same time you have other companies like you know I saw that uh, something in the news that Hasbro uh, that owns Magic the Gathering, wants to put Magic the Gathering cards on as NFTs. And then you have 
various uh, fantasy sports uh, franchises. One of them is Sorare that we're servicing and should go live uh, within a few weeks. Also, so all of these things are already coming to the blockchain. And the beauty of it is that even if you bought a, and minted, let's say, a Spider-Man NFT and you bought it from Marvel, the way the blockchain works is they cannot prevent you from taking it and you know, just being your own and then mingling it in some other game that maybe some third-party developer is going to do that, that uh, involves these different things, right? So and that's, a, that's an amazing and powerful trend, and we'll see more of that. Yeah. So uh, another angle that is being explored that will need our technology is uh, these things called CBDCs, so central bank digital currencies that are now being explored by a bunch of central banks. They too will need uh, you know, the scalability and privacy offered by ZK Starks. Share a bit more about these uh, CBDCs. So uh, partly because of the success of blockchains and partly because of this realization that right now, okay, let's go back, I don't know, 30 or 50 years, most of our, a lot of our economy, especially at, at the low level, right, not among big companies, was done using uh, physical embodiments of cash, right, notes and, and coins. Over time, these things have been replaced by digital counterparts. But these digital counterparts are not the same as coins and, 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 and notes that are basically given as a service by the government. These are now, right, the credit card companies and the banks and these uh, corporations that are offering it only to uh, uh, customers that are, you know, the homeless don't have uh, access to many of these networks. So right now we live in a situation where there are many people who are unbanked for a variety of reasons. And why wouldn't the existing uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, some of which you've uh, earlier mentioned, would be sufficient for this? There are a lot of reasons. Uh, okay, so the technology will definitely probably be similar, right? They will use a lot of elements from the code of, of, uh, of uh, you know, things like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Okay. Now, 10 years down the road, where do you see yourself? Going back to university or uh, finding another cool algorithm and trying to, uh, to change the world? 10 years from now, I very much hope to be alive still, you know, having fun, <laughs> healthy. <laughs> the rest is uh, far less important. Um, that's a question I really can't answer. I really hope that I will feel that I still have stuff to contribute somewhere and that I'm enjoying what I'm doing. But I, I don't know. Yeah, definitely. Returning back to research is uh, one option. Maybe I'll be in some other company. Maybe I'll still be at Starkware. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe I'll do yeah. windsurfing all day long. Yeah, uh, probably. Um, if I'm a student that uh, just graduated in computer science, would you suggest me to continue and study for a PhD? Or would you tell me, come join us in the high-tech industry? Okay, if you're really good, you definitely I want you to join us. But uh, as a general comment, I would say that it really depends who you are, because there's a lot of value in doing uh, research. So for instance, a PhD. There's also a lot of value in uh, pursuing things that are more practical in the world and which you uh, happen to like. It's more, I think, a question of what personality you are. I mean, I would put it this way. Doing a PhD is a lot about being, you know, having a lot of 
stamina, curiosity, grit. And you have to be of the type that can be, you know, function well with a lot of uh, failures and loneliness. Because ultimately, research is about going and trying to do things that are very close to impossible or unknowable or really, really, it's not clear if they work out. So you have to have a certain character of a, right, of a lone ranger, an explorer, someone with a lot of grit and belief in this thing. Now, some people have that kind of personality or that aspect to their personality. And there are others who want, you know, for instance, if you want to be part of a team, you want to come in the morning and have the social aspects, you want to right, work together, you want to feel this uh, daily or near daily sense of uh, progress, then I think in most cases you might be quite miserable doing a PhD because it's, it's a very different. So it's really, it's really who you are. I would say also probably the, the coffee is better in the high-tech industry than the, in the campus, but uh, I'm not sure. Good question. I think, you know, by now coffee has, has been commoditized enough. <laughs> that you have great coffee everywhere, right? So uh, Yeah, yeah, you're right. If there is a... One theme or one uh, lesson that you, th- you would like our audience to take, what would it be? Okay, one thing I find myself uh, always, here's one thing that I, oh, I'll make it two things. One is uh, consciously work on being an optimist. So what I mean is whatever you're doing, anytime you're going to take a challenge, there's a very high risk of failing. But paradoxically, you will be increasing your chances of success if you believe that it will succeed. So you have to have, I think it's very good to have this uh, optimism, sometimes irrational optimism, because going through life having irrational optimism about your ability to do things and solve things is a very good uh, prior or um, mindset to actually solve problems and make progress. So that's, well, let that be uh, a uh, a good one lesson. You promised me too. The second would be that um, I think, uh, okay, the second, which is something I say to my children, but also to my you know, students and people who ask for advice, don't try to optimize for you know, the end goal, be it uh, to be rich or to uh, win this or do that. I think you should optimize for doing things that are meaningful to you. So, I mean, those of you who have kids, I think, uh, I think, well, this is I don't know, the way I, we treat my, my wife and, and I treat my kids. I think we try to emphasize that they do things that are meaningful and important to them rather than, let's say, whatever, passing some exam at some very high grade. And, you know, you can extrapolate through life. So, like, uh, you know, if this is meaningful for you, then you should do it, uh, you know, even if you're parents said that you, whatever, should be a doctor or a lawyer, but you really want to be this thing or do that. I mean, I think that's, that's a good strategy. As long as you'll become a brain surgeon, it's okay. <laughs> uh, that's, that's your lesson. Okay. That's, that's not mine. I mean, you see, I, I, I didn't become a brain surgeon. So yeah. Eli, it was a great pleasure having you with us. Thank you. Abishai. And, uh, Hopefully, uh, a lot of success in your uh, new company and and many, many, plenty of uh, surfing hours. (laughs) Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Charlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.